Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast number 32. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week, I will be correcting myself from the previous episode. I was completely fucking wrong about something that I talked about, and I want to clear that up uh, and set the record straight on it. Secondly, I'll be talking about how to handle controversial material and how to do something that's a little bit unique by going against the grain of conventional wisdom. But first up, I can announce that uh, this June at the Great American Pitch Fest, I will be hosting an event with Ryan Engel. Ryan is the screenwriter of Nonstop with Liam Neeson. Check out the trailer on YouTube if you haven't seen it. Movie looks pretty fucking cool. Um, and we'll be looking at uh, an action scene and a tension sequence from the script and looking at you know, how they're built on the page. And maybe I'll even throw in a couple of ideas as to how they could have been taken further, uh, just to show that, you know, regardless of how much work is done and regardless of the level of professionalism as to who you're dealing with, you can always find more work to be done and ways to push things just a little bit further. Um, and a really good example of that is that I am actually working on a on a script right now. Uh, it's a really interesting project. Can't say too much about it, but it came to me through my consulting work. And, you know, as a reminder, I did not start out as a screenwriter. Um, it's not something that I've dabbled in in over a decade. And yet uh, this opportunity came across my plate where somebody sort of talked me into doing it. And I'm having a very interesting time. Maybe I'll be able to discuss a little bit more about what it's like to be on the complete other side of the writing process. I don't know that it's a good thing. You know, part of my approach to dealing with writers is to tell them exactly what they need to know. And it might make me a little too sympathetic. You know, it might make me dance around a little bit too much. Um, there, there is something to be said for being direct and not worrying too much about somebody's feelings when you're dealing with the piece of material. And it will be very difficult to go back and deal with writers in the same exact way that I did before. Now that I'm having the experience knowing everything I've learned, but still struggling in ways uh, with the page and with the writing process. But, you know, it's it's interesting. There's a – this is a World War II project. That's all I'll say about sort of the concept of it. But I want to talk real quickly about an idea that's in there um, where in the previous version of the script, the character shows up at a train station and gets on a train and then travels on the train for two days. Well, that's boring. So, you know, I've talked a lot about the creation of conflict, and that's something that I have definitely been focusing on in my movie watching over the last couple of years. How much conflict can just be packed into every situation? So dealing, for example, with this train sequence, uh, I realized, okay, well, what are the conflicts we can create? Well, I came up with a couple of things. Now, again, I'm actually being paid for about 10 to 15 days of work, so there's only so much time I can dedicate to any of these things and only so many ideas that are going to come, but I came up with a couple of things. One, uh, the train on its way to the station is being bombed uh, by, by planes overhead. Uh, secondly, our hero, who's in a crowded train station where a lot of people are waiting to get on this train, realizes, holy shit, uh, this train's being bombed. It's not 
slowing down either. The, this train is just going to sort of zoom through the station. So then him and his companion at the time uh, leave the train station and make a running start. They start, you know, running so that they can move alongside this train and perhaps hop on. And then, of course, the companion leaps onto the train uh, and our hero trips and... Uh, makes a last-second approach to the train and, of course, gets on it. But what you have right there are three different elements of conflicts and problems that the hero has to do something that in the previous draft of the script was just, let me get on a train. Um, And it's these momentary employments, I guess you could say, of of tension and of throwing rocks at your character, uh, of putting your character in a tree and throwing things at them, of making things more difficult, that even the smallest things in your script, that will keep the energy, it keeps the energy up uh, to, to do that where, you know, you're constantly giving the audience little bumps of adrenaline by putting your hero in situations that uh, are difficult and that are conflict-filled. And even something as simple as, you know, just changing uh, the dynamic of a small scene like that or a small sequence like that can really pump up the script because suddenly if you do that like 10 times, you have 10, 10 more exciting uh, mini sequences in your movie. And you know what? That's the kind of thing that really papers over some much bigger problems that may exist in the script. Because first and foremost, you want to keep somebody reading, you want to keep them excited, and you want to provide them with the energy that, you know, they're going to hope that an audience will feel. All right, so moving on, a reminder, I think I talked a little bit about this last week. There's a couple things that I need some help with, and if you're out there and you want to hire me, but, you know, maybe my rates are a little bit high, uh, there are ways that we might be able to barter, because I need some help with uh, some technical stuff. GarageBand, WordPress, Press, Adobe Illustrator. I need a Japanese translator. I have to work on a contract with somebody in Japan. Um, hey, if you know Japanese and American and can go back and forth really easily, hey, there's you know a script console for free in your future. Um, and if you're listening to this a couple weeks out, you know I'm recording this on February 3rd. But if you know it's the end of February or March and you're like, hey, I'm sure he already found somebody for that, you know what? Don't bet on it. Get in touch. The starter screenplay at gmail.com. Again, that's the starter screenplay at gmail.com. And email me, say, hey, I can help you out with this, and we'll work something out. And by the way, you can use that email address to email me other questions that maybe I'll answer on the podcast. And a quick reminder about previous episodes that I think are really valuable. Um, I would love to say that every episode is great, but hey, you know, the the ones that I really recommend going back and listening to if you didn't listen to them, the episodes on Straw Dogs. Oz the Great and Powerful, Categories of Horror, Gravity, and Behind the Candelabra. You don't necessarily have to have even seen the movies to get something out of the podcast themselves. Um, So moving on to the correction that I I was talking about. Last week, I used the film Saving Mr. Banks to make a point that I make in my book, The Starter Screenplay, which of course is available through Amazon and available on Kindle. And in the starter screenplay, I talk about focusing on the hero or identifying the hero of your story based on who has the goal. And I said, I don't understand why Walt Disney is not the star of Saving Mr. Banks. He's dealing with a crazy woman who's holding on to the rights to this 
project that he's been dreaming of doing for 20 years that he promised his daughter that he would do. Um, why are we stuck with this miserable, I'm, I'm not going to use any more words than miserable, somewhat mentally ill woman as our hero. Um, and, you know, it's something that didn't make a lot of sense to me because I just found the Emma Thompson character so unpleasant in the film. But I was wrong. And this is one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong. You know, often when I come up with ideas or when I have a position on something, uh, I feel strongly about it, but I don't necessarily think that I'm right. I want to get others' opinions on it. I did that with this thing because I talked to two different people who are also in the industry, and they both happen to really like the film, first of all. Uh, and, and secondly, uh, they brought up a couple of good points. The point that I thought, Initially, the the sort of um, devil's advocate to my own position uh, was that they didn't want to put too much focus on Walt Disney. You know, Walt Disney was a very complicated man. He wasn't a perfect man. He was a human being who spent a lot of his life having a lot of power and a lot of money and, you know, was not somebody who was necessarily beloved by everybody that he worked with. Um, and, you know... By making Walt Disney the hero of this piece, my theory was that it opened Disney and Walt Disney himself, it, it opened him up to some criticism that the film was largely able to bypass attracting because he was a character, it didn't have to mythologize him. Um, simply by even casting Tom Hanks in the role and making him seem like a kind of likable guy uh, was enough. And, and not enough that it became offensive to people who know, might know more about the ins and outs of, of Walt Disney and his behavior and so forth. Um, so, you know, that was my theory, that Walt is, that the Disney company was protecting uh, their, their namesake, and they have a responsibility to do that. Um, you know, but the the flip side of it is also that um, if the film had been about so, – so I came at it from the corporatist sort of point of view. Okay, they don't want to put too much, you know, of a spotlight on Walt Disney. But the really interesting point that a friend of mine made was if, if the film had been about Walt Disney, then you really would have had to have gotten into, well, what did this film and making Mary Poppins mean to Walt Disney? And that was sort of the character-based argument against doing this that, that also is partially relevant to what I was suggesting, but it makes the whole film about him then. And, you know, at, at that point, um, you might not have had as, as interesting of a conflict because once you get beyond, you know, okay, there's this crazy woman hanging on to the rights, uh, it, it requires a lot more invention that wasn't necessary with, uh, you know, the Emma Thompson character, P.L. Travers, because she did have an authentic goal, which was to protect her baby from this guy that she sort of didn't approve of, didn't approve of his worldview, didn't think that his, you know, that, that his approach to telling kids about the world was anything that she would want, you know, children to, to be exposed to. Um, you know, the, 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 the fun thing that the movie gets a lot of humor out of is just how disgusted she is by the world of Walt Disney, how, how the, the cheerfulness of it goes against everything that she believes in. And, you know, you see that, 
even if you haven't seen the movie, you see, you can understand that f- from the sternness that you see from, you know, that you remember from Mary Poppins. So I was wrong. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because so much of working on projects is bouncing things off of other people. And this is where I make my quick pitch for the concept consult that I do, uh, which is that, you know, it's it's sometimes about talking to other people and getting that feedback and looking at it from a different perspective. So, you know, this is something that I've done with a lot of listeners of the podcast. I think it's the best thing that I've ever come up with because, you know, earlier I made people wait until they had written an entire script uh, and spent often six months to a year of their time on a screenplay before they could hire me. And I, I think that was wrong. I wish I'd come up with this earlier because so many of the issues are fundamental, especially when you're starting out, especially when you don't quite know the ingredients that you're going to need in order to write an effective screenplay. And that's not just true about what's in the screenplay. Sometimes there's elements of the education that, you know, I can definitely point out once I've read a script, but, you know, definitely on the way into a script, uh, sometimes even just saying, hey, watch these three movies is worth the value of the consultation alone. So I'm going to move on right now. Um, I saw a couple of movies over the last uh, couple days, one of which was Kick-Ass 2. I love the first Kick-Ass, the second one, not so much. Um, I'm just going to move on from that. But the movie that I really, really appreciated was Bad Grandpa. Now, I'm a huge jackass fan, Uh, but I don't think that you need to be in order to appreciate this film. Now, let me say I'm also a huge hidden camera fan. There's nothing more entertaining to me than watching hidden camera shows. Uh, you can, one of my favorites ever, the Jamie Kennedy experiment, I bet you can go on YouTube and look at like the greatest, best of the Jamie Kennedy experiment and see some really terrific, edgy hidden camera work. But the fun part about Bad Grandpa is that they string together this narrative Um, But you have Johnny Knoxville at the center of it, who I think is one of the more underappreciated actors out there. Uh, He's a wildly talented physical comedian as well as a a strong actor. And I think because of his roots in the Jackass franchise, I think that often his talents uh, are overlooked in terms of Hollywood. But... Uh, with Bad Grandpa, you basically have a narrative that is strung together, and it's not a very complicated one. It's about a, a grandfather who needs to take his, after the death of his wife, needs to take his grandson on a road trip to deliver him to his dad, uh, because his mom, the the main character's daughter, uh, is going to jail on some drug charges and, and so forth. Uh, but basically you just put grandpa and eight year old grandson in a bunch of, uh, situations where hilarity ensues, where craziness happens. And the cool thing about it is that they don't show you multiple takes. Cause that's actually one of the conventions of a hidden camera, which is that we're going to show you the same thing over and over and show all the best reactions. And here, uh, they, they only do it once because they've created this wonderful blend of, hidden camera with, uh, real people. And, you know, sometimes they get really big responses, uh, which is also a convention of, uh, hidden camera stuff, which is to sort of poke and prod people to see how they'll react. But here that, that doesn't happen as much. I kind of appreciated the, that remove. It felt so much more organic to me and it created a flow inside of a feature film that was also being created 
you know, the, the, I, I, maybe what I love about it is the planning that goes into it and the naturalness that has to occur in order to sort of pull off uh, these sequences in a way that, you know, Borat, I, I love uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. I loved his TV series and I really appreciate his movies. I just couldn't get into them as much because to me, so much of it was created for the cameras and even the stuff that appeared to be hidden camera stuff really wasn't a lot of the time. Um, and to me that crossed the line where I no longer sort of could enjoy the the exhilaration that comes from presenting real people who don't know that they're being filmed and seeing how they react to given situations. And, you know, kudos to this film for being willing to just not have crazy reactions from people, to just showing people being like, what the hell just happened here? Um, and, you know, again, Spike Jones, uh, the brilliant, brilliant guy behind her and behind being John Malkovich and one of my favorite movies ever adaptation is part of the Jackass crew. He helped create that. He was one of the co-creators of that show. And I'm certain was very involved in the, you know, construct of this film and some of the decisions that they made. So, uh, I, the reason that I talk about bad grandpa though, is because it brought my attention to a wonderful, uh, I've only seen parts of it actually, but a wonderful project called the ringer from 2005 and this was a film starring Johnny Knoxville, uh, where it was about a a guy uh, whose friend cuts off a bunch of his fingers in an accident and doesn't have health insurance. So the question is, how do we get the money for our friend so that he can get his fingers sewn back on uh, and get the operation he needs? And the only way that he can come up with is to enter the Special Olympics to pretend like he is retarded, and, that he's mentally retarded, and to enter as a contestant uh, or participant uh, or an athlete. And Catherine Heigl, I think, plays the coach or something like that and his potential love interest. Um, and, you know, this does a couple of interesting things just as a concept. The first is that it, it's an outrageous idea. It's an outrageous idea that somebody would pretend to be retarded and infiltrate the Special Olympics to, you know, make money um, on a bet. Um, the the second thing is that uh, it, it takes the really conventional concept of somebody going undercover, pretending to be something that they're not in order to achieve a specific goal. That is a great concept for comedy. Um and, you know, I'm going to riff a little bit here from some notes that I took on a review that was written. Um, and it, before I get to that review, though, the thing that's so interesting about this project is that the Farrelly brothers were the producers of it. Um, and the, the cool thing is that the Farrelly brothers had a long-standing relationship uh, with the Special Olympics and a prehistory, I guess you could say, before this project of uh, of including physically and mentally handicapped people into their films. Sometimes I've actually found it to be a bit much. I found it to be a little bit distracting the way that they've done this. But, you know, that's part of the world that they like to create and they like to show these people who are, are people and humans that Hollywood completely usually overlooks and they put them into roles that, you know, that, that make them part of the community 
uh, in a way that that's really special. <laughs> so the, you know, they, they went into this project again with that history with the special Olympics and with being a voice for the, the physically handicapped in a way that, I mean, think of how amazing that is that the, uh, they create this idea about somebody who fakes being retarded in order to enter the special Olympics and the special Olympics themselves say, yeah, we're going to participate in the making of this movie. I think that's so cool. And it, it shows, you know, it, you may have needed to be the Farrelly brothers, meaning you may have needed to be really high profile people who've donated money in the past, who the organization might have been familiar with, and who had a history of putting incredibly sympathetic uh, portrayals of people with physical handicaps and using them in everyday situations in a way that nobody's ever thought of doing before. You may have needed all that history to get the Special Olympics on board. You don't need it in order to write the script. And I think that that's a really important point um, because, you know, sometimes an agency can can team up uh, people and maybe you don't need the word Special Olympics if you happen not to be have that long history in order to convince them to participate in your production. But you do not need the rights. You do not need the, you know, the okay beforehand. I think it's a waste of time to try to get organizations like that involved. Um you know, rights wise, because they're, they're probably going to say no. And, you know, you're, you're, uh, there's just no reason to spend that much time involved in the courtship process that goes on to, to make a deal like that happen. Uh, when you're writing the screenplay that is. So I, I often like to point those things out, you know, the, the, the ways that writers sometimes waste a lot of time that, that aren't necessary, uh, because you can write that script and Hey, you know what? Use the term special Olympics, go for it. Worry about them later. Worry about whether or not you can actually get away with using the term Special Olympics or if you need their permission or what you're going to have to do to get permission. Because remember, it's not you at that point. At that point, it's not about the writer. It's about the script itself and it's about the producers and it's about the studio. And, you know, if if a studio um, wants to work with an organization like that, a studio has a lot of power and a lot of money and the ability to reach out and make phone calls um, that, you know, that they can get things done that you don't need to get in advance. Um, so keep that in mind in the future. Um but, you know, the interesting thing about this film, and here I'm quoting from somebody else, so I'm not, I'm not going to pass these ideas off as my own, but um, the, the idea here uh, is that the people that are being portrayed, the, the mentally retarded and the, the physically handicapped who participate in the Special Olympics, um, they are shown to be sympathetic characters. And quoting from this uh, review that I wrote, uh, the one thing that, this, that is not formula in this movie is its portrayal of developmentally disabled athletes. Uh, because they're, they're shown as, quote, loyal, dedicated, smarter than most people think, and very funny. And while the non-disabled people in the movie are often clueless, inept, or corrupt, the Special Olympians are on to Steve, the character, almost immediately. And they don't just outsmart him, they out-nice him, too. They become the first real friends that he ever had. So, you know, what you're dealing with here are um, actual characters, you know, supporting characters that are created uh, that 
you know, sort of make our character, our hero rethink the way that he deals, uh, you know, or, or looks to take advantage of, you know, these people. And I really like the change that, that it's the at all the adults, all actually not, I don't mean to use the term adults, but all of the normally, um, regularly functioning people, I guess you could say, um, the non-disabled, they, uh, are willing to buy into this construct that he's retarded where, whereas the characters in the film who are actually having a problem do not, they're not fooled by him. And I think that that's, that's really, really cool. And that sort of goes to what I, I discussed in terms of doing something that's a little bit different. Um, embrace what other people would normally attack. Um, and I think that, you know, you also have to look at who the joke is on and who, you know, where the, where the, the joke is coming from. Um, so, you know, in, in the case of the ringer, uh, they, they don't look to make fun of, of people who are disabled. They don't make fun of their disabilities and they show them as fully functioning humans who are capable of, you know, realizing when other people are being, uh, being, uh, fooled and tricked. Um, and you know, I recently had a conversation, I'm going to wrap it up in a sec. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who was considering doing a project where the church, uh, was involved as a participant. Um, and not in terms of the production, but in terms of a, an entity of power in the script. And I say, you know, what would be really different. It would be really different in this pitch, um, that you're putting together. If the church did not represent like the bad guys, and if you and if you want to say, well, you know, the church was into some bad. I, I guess we're talking about the Catholic Church at the, in this case. At this point in history, that the story takes place, you could say, well, you know, the, the church was into some bad shit in those days because um, you know there's the whole history uh, of, of the church, uh, some of which is less savory than others. But the the thing that I said was, well, you can you can get around that. You can even have the hero make a comment about that to the priest that he's working with, who's a supporting character. And the priest can point out, well, you know, I can't defend everything the church has done, but I, I can talk, you know, the character can talk about the spirit of the church and what it, what it's meant to be and what it could become. Uh, if you can't even defend what's going on historically or at that moment in time. So, you know, that, that came from my experience reading for a contest, which deals with, you know, the faith-based community and with projects that look to be spiritually uplifting. And I, th I think that there's uh, a somewhat fair argument that, you know, that religion is often maligned in films, uh, j just like, you know, often in films uh, up until the, the Farrelly brothers got involved, the physically and mentally handicapped were, were used as punchlines. Um, and used to create humor, but not actually depicted as what I would consider to be characters. And that's sort of the change that a film like The Ringer brought. It wasn't incredibly successful. Um, and I have my theories on why that is. I don't need to get into that. Um, but you know, and, and I could just point to the studio. It was released by Fox Searchlight, which didn't have a huge history of, 
of selling comedies. Uh, you know, big studios are best at selling movies and they know what they're doing. And often when you have the smaller studios getting into anything other than review driven projects, meaning, you know, like at the time a Fox searchlight, which did have, you know, you could say, Oh, they had success with super troopers. Sure. Uh, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, but you know, super troopers made $20 million off an investment of less than a million or something. Uh, but it's still $20 million total. You know, like the studio, I'm pretty sure Fox Searchlight never launched a comedy that made more than a hundred million bucks. Um, and in any case, uh, so I'm going to wrap it up there today. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what I want to talk about next time. I have a whole bunch of screeners here, so I'm going to get through the rest of the Oscar movies. I'm going to revise my prediction, though. I, I know that I've tweeted that I was certain American Hustle would win Best Picture. I'm not so certain anymore. I, I think there's an argument to be made for 12 Years a Slave. The only problem is I haven't seen it. And there's a reason I haven't seen it. It's not because I don't know that it's great. I'm sure it is. Uh, it's just really, really difficult to commit to going and paying money and sitting down to watch a harrowing film about slavery and the horrors of it. Um, and, you know, that's reflected in the box office of the project, whereas a film like Schindler's List, uh, you know, made a lot more money. Schindler's List sold about four times as many tickets as 12 Years a Slave. So you could argue that at that point it had sort of, uh, it, it had reached the uh, saturation point in terms of people uh, having seen the film. And I think that you can look at box office and say, well, what percentage of the Academy has seen it? Because that's the dirty secret, if you will, of the Oscars. This is what they don't talk about. But this is why Harvey Weinstein's movies often win. You know, people uh, say, well, why Why does Harvey Weinstein's, you know, why is he the, the Oscar king? And he was the Oscar king before studios had ceded that territory to him, before studios got out of the business of marketing review-based films with adults and adult situations and so forth. Um, and he has talked about this and said, it's really just about getting people to watch the movie because that it's a numbers game. If, if, uh, you know, a certain percentage of the Academy watches your film, a certain percentage of those people will vote for the film. And that's all you need up until, up until a certain point. It's very helpful more specifically in the nominations, uh, process, uh, the whittling down process. Uh, it's who watches the films and how you court the Academy in order to get their butts into the seats of the screenings uh, or getting them to watch their screeners. And, you know, the flip side of it is that now that we have an expanded field for Best Picture um, and, you know, up to 10 nominees, the way that they do it now, by the way, just so you know, is that um, on the first ballot, people vote, well, what's your choice for best picture? And you need 5% uh, of the Academy during that first round to vote for you. And that's how you get a nomination. So when there's a surprise lack of a nomination, like with Blue Jasmine, um, which had even been speculated as a best picture potential upset uh, winner, um, you know, it shows that the support just wasn't there because not even 5% of the people who initially voted voted for it to be included in the best picture category. Um, so, you know, it does speak to the broadness of appeal. But really, that's what winning Oscar is all about. It's about just getting people to watch the movie. And that's why I think the 12 Years a Slave has a little bit of trouble because it's just so harrowing that um 
you know, there's a reason that I've seen seven of the nine nominees and that's one of the ones that I didn't see. Um, it's really tough to get people to, to buy tickets to something like that or just to even see it for free because Academy members get screeners. They, but remember they get tons of screeners. They have more screeners than they know what to do with. And that's the, the, you know, going back to my point about getting people to watch the films. Um, if you're an Academy voter, you might get like 50 movies. Can you imagine if you had 50 movies on your shelf? How many of those are you going to get to in a two month window? Now, granted, a lot of the Academy is older, uh, so they have uh, potentially more time. But just because you're an Academy member does not mean that you're going to sit there and watch 50 movies. Um, it, it just doesn't, uh, you know, there's only so seriously people take these things, especially, you know, maybe your first year in the Academy, you're going to be really diligent about it. But 37 years in, you know, you're lucky if some of these people know how to work the DVD player, you know. So in any case, um I'm I'm really interested to see what does win Best Picture. I have seen The Wolf of Wall Street now. I think it is uh, brilliant. I highly, highly recommend it. And I'm going to recommend that you watch the first couple of minutes of it. I'm sure you can find it online if you're not inclined to go to the theater and sit through it for three hours. Uh, but the value of the film totally comes across in those first five minutes. This film was created, it's almost a modern-day Caligula um, it is a three-hour orgy of debauchery. Um, and, you know, again, what I really appreciated about the film was that if you look back at the other Martin Scorsese docudramas, specifically Goodfellas and Casino, which Wolf of Wall Street is a successor of, you know, Wolf of Wall Street doesn't exist without the construct of those earlier films. Um, but if you look at Casino and Goodfellas, they really pull, they pull their punches on the, on the heroes. You know, Ray Liotta comes across a lot more sympathetic than Henry Hill was in real life. And I'm, I'm speaking based on, you know, Henry Hill's appearances on the Howard Stern show where he would call in and he was a drunk often and just not the world's nicest guy. Um, you know, he was a mobster. Same thing with the Ace Rothstein, the character in Casino. You know, he was he was kind of a despicable guy and the film shows you some moments of that, but doesn't, you know, there was sort of maybe a fear back then. How ugly are we going to make this? How gross is this going to get? And Wolf of Wall Street says, fuck it. Wolf of Wall Street says, we're just going to go for it. We're not going to pull punches. We're going to show you how ridiculous this person was and how ridiculous his behavior was and how unhinged the entire circus that surrounded him and his behavior was. And I think, uh, you know, props to them for doing that because it creates something that you've just never seen before on screen. A uh, quick example from the first five minutes, he is fucked up out of his mind on drugs and or alcohol, both. I mean, he's a cokehead. You, you see him smoking crack later in the movie. He's just down for anything. But the uh, he's landing a helicopter on his in his backyard in the opening. And he's of course got a co-pilot who's there, I guess, to, you know, to watch him uh, <laughs> and knows how to, but you know, you see Jordan Belfort, the character uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio trying to land a helicopter, just fucked up out of his mind. 
Uh, and, and it's so outrageous. It's so like, wow, this guy just was living in a really crazy way. So, all right, that's all for this week. You can check out my website, officialscreenwriting.com. Please, if you didn't listen to those episodes, Straw Dogs, Oz the Great and Powerful, Categories of Horror, Gravity, and Behind the Candelabra. I think there was some good stuff in all those episodes. If you have a screenplay or, you know, you can hire me to read your script. Uh, I do script consulting at officialscreenwriting.com is where you can uh, hire me to do a one or two script consultation. And again, if you're just thinking of ideas, hey, concept consultation, they're awesome. I, I wish I had offered them earlier. Uh, 99 bucks. We talk for an hour. Usually it goes longer than an hour, depending on you know how many ideas you have. Um, and you know, even if you have a short film, I can consult on that. Uh, I recently, one of my clients sent me a, a short uh, that he had just finished and is submitting to festivals and stuff. And I was able to look and see, you know, this, this one scene didn't get the point across. And the, the funny thing about this scene was that it, I, I won't go into the details, I guess, but, um, he was trying not to be on the nose. He was trying not to use specific words. He was trying not to be too confrontational about the subject matter. And the result, he went too far in the other direction to the point where I said, actually, there is a way around this scene, the final cut. You can actually just cut out most of this scene and it gets the point across because there's a uh, situation that occurs and there's some confusion there in my mind. And it, it sort of is exacerbated by the conversation that follows, which I don't think was logical and I think sort of detracts from what the the guy was, the writer, director, and star was trying to make happen in it. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that, hey, you send me the script, I might even be able to say, hey, you don't need this scene, and suddenly you save a day of shooting. Um, that happens. I, I think the funny thing is, when it comes to stuff that's going to production, um, that's always been sort of my greatest talent, which is like, you don't need this, you don't need this, and these two scenes you can just sort of blend together because they're not that interesting and you're only making one point. So you might as well just cut this scene, save the location, save the day of shooting and so forth. Anyway, uh, I'm Adam Levenberg. This was official screenwriting podcast number 32 and, uh, my book starter screenplay available at Amazon and on Kindle. And again, garage band, WordPress, Adobe illustrator. I need a Japanese translator, any of those things. Uh, Hey, let me know. Uh, you know, I might be able to work something out in terms of a consultation. All right. I'll be back next time. Thanks.